Grace United Methodist Church, loving as God intends, through helping, healing, and home. this idea, which I think is a phenomenal idea, um, I just want to give you some background. I'm new to Mount Juliet, and uh, the first day that I started teaching here, I asked the students, in addition to the curriculum that we were going to cover, what do you want to happen? This young lady here, Terrilyn, said, we want Centoya Brown to come here and talk to us. So it wasn't my idea. So I'm a big believer that wisdom comes from the mouths of babes or young people. And so we got on it. And then we got support to order 25 books, and that's what they wanted. And we spent a portion of about 30 days reading the book, having discussions, having questions, doing some work that actually, without Centoya knowing, she led us through, through her book. One of the passages that you'll hear read deals with forgiveness. And so they did their own reflection on forgiveness and the importance of that. Another thing that they did, which was led to us from the book, there was this thing that Centoya had to do for her last class at Lipscomb called developing a learning map. So they did that. Something else happened I need to share with you and be transparent. We initially presented the idea, and the principal was in favor of it, to administration to have her come. As you know, sometimes lawyers can be risk-averse. and they came up with a reason why we could not do it at school. I'm so proud of these young people because they refused to accept no for an answer. And so they began to go through the community and ask other people, where else can we have this? And that's the type of energy that we need to change the world that we have today where things are just so divisive and people are uh, abdicating their voice to remain silent in the face of things that are not right. And so we need that youthful energy. And so I'm thankful for you also today for being here because it's a testimony of support for the idea that young people have value, young people can help us solve some of the problems that we as older people, reluctantly to admit, have created. 
I trust them, and I thank you for trusting them. So I've asked Pastor Jeff, as appropriate, to lead us in prayer. And I just want to say that uh, we're grateful that we were asked to open up our doors to this. And um, it didn't take any time to say yeah. So we're super excited to have everybody here this evening. Let's pray. Good evening, Lord. We thank you for the day. We thank you for this time, this place where we can gather together with family, friends, loved ones, new friends, old friends, and spend some time uh, to hear a story, uh, to share in conversation, and to uh, witness really to your amazing grace, the way that you can uh, take something and uh, turn it into an opportunity for so many people to be blessed. And so we give you thanks for the uh, strength and the courage uh, that Centoya has demonstrated, uh, her willingness to share. And I just ask that you bless this time that we have so that each and every one of us leaves feeling fresh and anew and empowered to be instruments of your mighty grace in this world. We pray all this in your most holy and precious name. Amen. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I would like to welcome you all to our event, Freedom, Justice, and Mercy for All, a conversation with Santoya Brown-Long. Uh, I'm Declan Delaney, the president of Students for Criminal Justice Reform. Uh, we're a student group dedicated to promoting justice and judicial reform through our community and events and showcases. Uh, before we give, begin our program this evening, I'd like to give a few words of thanks. Uh, to Grace United Methodist Church, thank you for providing us such a wonderful venue and your generous hospitality. Uh, especially to all of the students who took their time to plan this event and have come out tonight to work for all their hard work over the past few weeks. To Ms. Brown, Mr. Yoder, all of the hard, uh, and the rest of her team, thank you again for being so easy to work with and coming down here. Your message is incredibly important, and we are so glad you, we have the opportunity to hear you speak. Finally, to everyone who came out tonight, this wouldn't be possible without you. So once again, thank you. Uh, we are raising money to donate to the Polars Project at the front, uh, this organization serves victims of human trafficking in the U.S. through the management of the National Human Trafficking Hotline and by collecting data on human trafficking in the United States. Um, please consider donating on the way out today. They'll be at the table where Ms. Brown will be signing books. For those of you who aren't familiar with Ms. Brown's story, I'll give a slight overview. After a rough childhood, Ms. Brown was a victim of sex trafficking as a teenager. After being forced into prostitution, she killed a client out of self-defense. She tried as an adult and received life in prison. While incarcerated, Ms. Brown began to work towards a college degree in conjunction with Lipscomb University. During this time, her case became viral online, receiving support from the likes of T.I., Rihanna, and Kim Kardashian. Ms. Brown also met her now husband, Jamie Long, from prison, and married him over the phone. <laughs> after a wave of support, Governor Bill Haslam granted Ms. Brown clemency after her case was reviewed, and she left prison a free woman on August 7th of this year. Her book detailing her life story and work, Free Centoya, is now available nationwide in all major bookstores. Our schedule for tonight's program will begin with some brief words from students from our organization. We will then move into a roughly 35-minute moderated Q&A section led by Carson Cote, followed by an audience Q&A segment that will last approximately 25 minutes. Afterwards, we will hear a few closing remarks from Mr. White, and Ms. Brown will be available to sign books up at the front. 
So without further ado, please help me welcome Alyssa Cooley with a presentation on juvenile justice. Hello everybody, my name is Alyssa Cooley and I will be doing a, a quick presentation on sex and human trafficking. Um, there should be a slide up in just one moment, but our first slide will say how human trafficking is basically an organized crime in which humans are treated as possessions to be controlled and forced in prostitution or in voluntary labor. So, for example, like an example sentence, Miss Brown was a victim of human trafficking. Um, so there are an estimated of 40.3 million victims of human trafficking globally. And 75% of those victims are women and girls. The average age a teen enters the sex trade, they are normally around 12 to 14 years old. Did you know that 94 minors are trafficked in Tennessee each month? And a large amount of tra trafficking cases have been reported in Davidson and Williamson counties. This is why a program like this is helpful to spread awareness. There are several passages in the book that really stood out, and I encourage all of you uh, to get the book. We've not only read it, but we've listened to the audio, which is, is just as compelling because you hear Centoya's voice, and you also hear Jamie Long's voice toward the end. And it really had a significant impact for my students that were not only able to read the pages, but also to hear their voice. So early on in the book, there is this passage. More than anything, I wanted to belong. I wanted to sit down with a group of friends and feel like I was accepted for who I was. I didn't have to try to fit in, but it didn't happen. I felt awkward and alone. Centoya was adopted and there was a struggle with identity because many of the kids that she went to school with, she did not look like. So there was this urgent need to fit in and belong. Even though she had the love of parents, her adoptive parents, there was still the question and the questioning of self and value. Many of these things led to some of the challenges that she faced. I want to move further and talk to you or have someone speak to uh, some of the things that ended up being distractions toward self-destruction. Mike was 18, the oldest boy in school, with braids in his hair, gold on his teeth, and 14 tattoos. He looked like the kind of boy who could take me away from here, like he could be my runaway love. He wasn't in my class, but I caught his attention in the halls as I walked to the bathroom or to lunch. 
many times what we see as a very critical and turning point in the lives of many young people is adolescence. When you're going through puberty and those changes and again the confusion that comes with trying to identify one space in the world and acceptance in the world, Michael became a source, a destructive source, but a source that felt or filled a need based on trying to find oneself. And many times children that end up in human trafficking, this is the exact, the exact thing that occurs. Sometimes navigating through teenage years can be a very tumultuous experience. And so this is what Sintoya faced. Uh, it would eventually lead to her meeting someone else uh, after a couple of very horrific encounters where she was assaulted twice within a 24-hour period as a result of people that took advantage of her naivete and inexperience in the world. You see, many times teenagers, uh, quite naturally, will pull away from their parents. How else are they going to figure things out? They have to try things. They have to experiment with things. Our hope as parents is that hopefully they will be safe. But in this case, she was not safe. But all that changed that night, Cut made me flirt with a pizza delivery guy over the phone to get a discount. The first time I did it, he couldn't have been happier when we ended up with two pizzas, wings, and two liters of pop for $2 and some change. Then we found out the guy lived with his roommate at the same hotel. So many times when we have young people that end up in these spaces and places, no one has really taught them the value of their self-worth and sometimes people can take advantage and have them focus in ways that really aren't reflective of who they are called to be. And so this happened to Centoya with an individual uh, who treated her like property, who abused her, who conditioned her, and who programmed her. Well, some of you, and we've had people that have said that we make choices. Yeah, that is correct. We make choices. But we can't ignore that in any given moment, we're all vulnerable to conditioning. One of the things that has plagued us recently, and probably you in the audience, is Black Friday. And how many of you were influenced and manipulated to spend beyond your means or to purchase things that you really didn't need to purchase? That's just an example that's very clear and very recent in our own experience. Another passage I want to share with you is if you would stand and read this. Um, Kathy and I got to work drafting a bill. Our idea was for the court to review cases of juveniles with life sentences after a minimum of 15 years served. They'd look at several different factors, including any associated trauma, 
how old the person was when they committed the crime, and whether the person obeyed prison rules and took classes since they were locked up. Of course, I did skip over what happened that led to Centoya being in the criminal justice system. You can go there for yourself and find all the details, and it's worth reading. But the point is, is that we have juveniles that are incarcerated across this country who lack the mental capacity to understand the consequences of their actions, and it's all based on brain development. The research tells us that a person's brain is not fully developed until the age of 24 if you're a woman, 26 if you're a guy. Go figure, right? <laughs> We're always delayed. <laughs> if you are sitting next to a young man or a man in the audience, just blink if you agree. I'm not trying. Okay. All right. But anyway, that being the case, she did end up in the juvenile justice system, uh, held at 16 years old, dealing with attorneys, dealing with prosecutors who did not give her access to due process, her not understanding what she was agreeing to, her even at that point defending the person that trafficked her, thinking that he was her boyfriend. All these things come into play in a very real way when you have no life experience in the world. And so now she is in the position after being in this facility where she's starting to grow, she's starting to mature, and she's starting to understand that there are other juveniles that are suffering. And so her and her former attorney drafted legislation that they proposed, which was actually heard on the Tennessee House floor, but was rejected. I also want to tell you about somebody else that's not here that had a similar circumstance when she was 17. She is a friend of Centoya, and she also spoke to our class, Ashley Sellers. Ashley was convicted of murder for a murder that she did not commit. She wasn't even there. She was with the person after he had committed the deed. And she herself, like Centoya, not afforded access, misled by detectives, ending up in a situation where she ended up serving 21 years for something she didn't do. It's happening to a lot of juveniles, and one of the things that Centoya has been very involved in is advocacy. The thing that's really impressive to me about her is that this is really not about her, if you heard it from her. It's about her using her platform to raise awareness on vital issues that are impacting our children and our community. And also let me tell you this, every 30 seconds in this country, a child is abducted or lured or coerced into human trafficking every 30 seconds. Over 300,000 children in this country are involved in human sex trafficking where they are coerced and held against their will. Before I go to the brighter side, the evolution of Centoya, and the call from God, 
I want to share some other facts with you. That on average, on any given day, a child that is trafficked, they could possibly be involved in 20 sexual encounters each day to make a profit for someone that's using them as property. 20 each day. So let's do some math on that. Let's say they got sick days, which we know is not really a reality when you're being treated like garbage. But let's say they got a month sick time. Let's say they got vacation time. And let's whittle that 365 days down to 300, and you multiply that times 20 encounters. How many is that? in a person's life that's property in one year, 6,000. Today we looked at a story of a woman who was trafficked and uh, she got pregnant at 14. And her pimp said, that's not allowed for you to get pregnant. So he beat her until she lost the baby. So these things do occur. The best side of the book comes here. Kathy got me in touch with a woman named Stacia Freeman, who founded a group called Epic Girl. Every day she worked with the juvenile court system to find girls in trouble and set them up with identity classes to help them understand their vulnerabilities learn more about their potential risks, and connect them with resources. Even, we even arranged for Stacia to visit me in prison to help me research my project. I sat in the visitation gallery with a pen and paper, scribbling furiously as Stacia told me about girls facing life sentences, girls with no clue what lay ahead of them, girls who refused to listen to a word Stacia or Kathy told them. So in the process of her going through all these appeal processes, which she had three appeals, which were all denied. She began to become an activist while she was incarcerated, working with juvenile female offenders, trying to be a guiding light for them so that they would not end up where she was. And along this journey, uh, some things started to happen. Uh, she ended up in Memphis and she had dreams that were a reflection of things to come. She dreamed that puppies would be allowed to come into the facility for inmates. And she told some of her fellow inmates that she had this dream. At first she wasn't even aware that it was a dream until she woke up. And when she told others about it, they just dismissed it. And then soon it would come to pass. Her fellow inmates were shocked. They couldn't believe that she dreamed about something that did not exist but then happened and nobody even knew it was going to happen. It happened on three other occasions. This was the, not the beginning but the full manifestation of the presence of God in her life that would lead her. Um, and so she went further and... Uh, I'm skipping around. I'm new at this, so please forgive me. 
she went further, and uh, she would return to Nashville from the Memphis prison, and there was a set of circumstances that led her there. Uh, but one of the things that occurred was that uh, a person that was part of uh, rejecting an initial appeal that she put forward, Preston Ship, ended up being her professor at Lipscomb. He found out that she wasn't the person that everybody read about. Everybody perceived that she was this monster that just killed this person. Yes, that did happen, and it's tragic that that happened to Mr. Allen. But there was much more to it. I've tried to give you a little bit of it that's inside the book, and again, I encourage you to read it. But the other thing that began to happen was when she was removed from Memphis and sent back to Nashville, Preston Ship had a meeting with a person second in charge with the Tennessee State Department of Corrections. And he ended up visiting the Memphis prison and walking into Centoya's cell. Again, God's hand. When she had been given life, she wasn't supposed to be let out until she was 69 years old. That was it. Three failed appeals. The only thing left was a governor's intervention. And even still, God is calling, and God put it out such that one of her former attorneys would go to a restaurant where she would end up sitting right next to the governor. How can you explain all these things? And then all of these celebrities that began to come out and speak on her behalf, LeBron James, Rihanna, and on and on. How could you explain these things in the face of three failed appeals? But there was something left undone, and I want to find it. And it comes from her husband, Jamie. Toward the end, as she's trying to keep the faith, um, there is something that happens, and I'm having difficulty finding it, so I'll just tell you. <clears throat> Jamie said to her, and Jamie was a person that wrote her while she was incarcerated, because in the middle of the night when he was having writer's block from writing music, that's his profession, uh, he decided to go into another room and there was a television playing where he saw the complete story of Centoya Brown and felt called and compelled to write her. They began communicating. And then as she's moving toward her last appeal, Jamie said something, if I could paraphrase, and if I get it wrong, I do apologize. He said, maybe there's something left yet undone that needs to be done for you to be in the right place for God to truly deliver you. And I want to say this, when we look at Free Centoya, it really is a reflection of not just her, but all of us, are in bondage in some way, shape, or form. And her particular bondage was forgiveness. So Jamie said to her, maybe God is asking you to forgive your mother, Gina, who abandoned you as a baby. 
and who drank alcohol while she carried you. Maybe that's what you must do. So she went through that process of learning how to do that, and he guided her. And it was shortly thereafter that Governor Haslam responded. It wasn't the next day, don't get me wrong. In the course of time, when you measure 15 years, it wasn't that long. And he released her. Here's the last thing I want to say, and really I did not mean to talk this long. I meant to really go through the book and the passages. I really respect and admire her husband because he was obedient to God's voice. When we look at her entire story, none of it makes sense that all these things would just happen. All these people would get involved. It doesn't make sense when you have a parole board that rejects and the governor is supposed to take their recommendation, the last shot, and they rejected her. She shouldn't be sitting here. He shouldn't be sitting here. All this happened. And how can you explain a young man that has his freedom, that couldn't be involved and engaged with anyone, but hears the voice of God say to him, she is who you should be with. Such that he sold his car, he moved from Houston, Texas, and came to Nashville before even the word came out that she was going to be released. Because God spoke to him and said, do this. So in faith, he moved. And so I'm so humbled to be able to lay eyes on such a man and character when we so desperately need that in families today. So that's all I have. I just want to bring Jamie Long and Centoya to the stage and two students that will engage you in questions and conversation. So I want to begin tonight with talking about your book, Free Centoya, that has been recently published and is now available nationwide. Um, this is a huge achievement for you. And I just wondered if you could walk us through your decision to write that and the process that you took to write it. Right. So as he said, my story is not just about my experience. This is the experience of so many people, so many young people today. There are people still going through this. And when I was going through it, I didn't have a blueprint, right? I didn't have anybody who had been through the same things. There were people who were in the system who were dealing with me who hadn't really dealt with this kind of thing. And so I thought it was important to lend my own experience to this narrative. And it was a process that took many years to write. I started and I would stop. I would get stuck. And finally, I was actually in a church service when a minister was anointing everyone. I had worked in the chapel and she came to me and she said, God said, write the book. 
And I'm thinking, well, I've only been trying for about two or three years, but okay. So I sat down, and this time it was completely different. It just started flowing because I was at a point where I saw where God's hand was in the entire story, and I could see what he was doing throughout my journey, and that is, that's the important key to everything, and Jamie helped me to discover that, and that's what really got me to the point where I was ready to share the story. So in your book, you talk about your newfound relationship with God and the faith. Um, how has that deepening of your faith changed your personal like, outlook of the world? It's changed everything. Everything that you can think of, when you look at it through the eyes of faith, you just get this peace, right? I can remember feeling, especially when I was young, when I was you guys' age, something would happen and I would just think that this is the end of everything. I'll never come back from this. I don't even see how, yeah, like, it's a teenage thing, right? <laughs> but adults go through it too. So me being able to see that those moments that I thought it was over, those moments I didn't know how I was going to get out of these situations. He always worked it out for my good. It showed me that his will is so much better than mine, and his plan is complete. It's perfect. He has a plan for everything, and when you can't see it, you just got to trust it, and you just got to know that he's going to work it out, and it's just given me a peace beyond understanding. So your story of the redemption in the American prison system is truly inspiring. You were able to deepen your relationship with God. You earned your college degree from Lipscomb. You spearheaded a movement for human sex trafficking with the Glitter Project. But what do you believe helped you keep on the right track? It was hard. It was really hard, especially coming into the situation at such a young age. I didn't understand anything and I'm much like many of you where I didn't know how to accept life I didn't know how to accept no so when I was told that I would spend the rest of my life in prison I went through this phase where it was like I'm not hearing that I'm gonna get out of here I don't know how I started teaching myself how to study case law I started trying to educate myself on the system and and how it works and how I could get out of this but behind that was just this defiance right? This grit to just keep pushing through. Even when I didn't know how I was going to get through, I just knew that I was going to continue pushing through. So speaking of the Glitter Initiative, can you explain to us more of what that is? Right. So the Glitter Initiative was actually part of the Capstone Project. As he mentioned, uh, Miss Stacia Freeman, who she just joined us, she had actually come as part of my college assignment I had to look back over my journey, my learning journey, right? All the things that I learned, not just from school, but from life itself. And I started to see all of these unhealthy patterns, all these unhealthy understandings of relationship, of sex and what it means. And I saw how that played a role in me ending up 16 years old being trafficked. I saw that the man that was trafficking me, he was standing at the end of a journey that started long before I had ever even met him. The unhealthy behaviors and the unhealthy practices had led me straight to that. And I felt that other people should know this. I felt that we should start having conversations about this. I didn't know that I was a trafficking victim until I was almost 30 years old because I didn't know what trafficking was. When I heard about trafficking, it didn't look like me. 
And that's not the narrative that was out there. And so I believe that this, is, this should be contributed to the narrative. This is what we should be talking about, and we should be having conversations with one another about it, right? That's where it comes from, the grassroots learning initiative on teen trafficking, exploitation, and rape. So it kind of detoured a bit whenever it was first launched, and instead of just talking about it as a whole, it was my individual story. And now that I'm free... You know, I just want to highlight other stories as well because there are so many other voices that need to be elevated. So my husband and I have started a nonprofit, the Foundation for Justice, Freedom, and Mercy. Miss um, Stacia is also on the board, and we'll be launching the Glitter Project. Oh, and Wes as well. Wes is on the board as well. Oh, Stacia, raise your hand. I keep referencing you. <laughs> So we hope in January to do an official launch of the Glitter Project. So now that you are out of the system, how have you adjusted to life outside of prison and what are your plans for the future? Um, adjusting has been really, it's been really easy for me because of the support that I have. However, I have to say that that's not the regular experience of people, right? It's not common. So many times people are just tossed out by the prison system without adequate resources, without adequate preparation. Um, so I've been blessed, but there's so much more that can be done for other people because transition is very important, right? How you transition will determine how you thrive in the community and whether or not you recidivate, right? So I've been blessed and I really just take it day by day and just asking God what he wants for me to do Day by day, I'm just living my dream, you know? <laughs> so reflecting on your past, if you could say something, something to your teenage self or teens that find themselves in the same positions you were, what would you say? I would say, number one, you're going to get through it, right? There's a story that I had held on to that was spoken to me um, by a pastor that had visited the prison, and he talked about this father and this son who they were rock climbing, and the father was higher up on the rope, and the son, he was beneath him, and the son starts freaking out because the rope started to tear. And he's like, Dad, Dad, the rope's breaking, I'm going to fall. And the father just calmly looked down, and he said, Son, it's okay. If you just reach beyond the breaking point, you can continue to climb. And that was so powerful that I've carried it with me for almost 10 years now. And all those dark moments when I didn't know how I was going to continue to go on. I didn't know what life meant beyond that moment. You just keep holding on and you just reach past that point and you'll get through it. There are people in the community who are here to support you, who have been through what you've been through, even though as a young person you think that older people, they don't get it and they just don't understand there are people, there are healthy people who can support you and who are there for you. And there's so much life that lies in front of you and you all have so much potential. And, you know, there are people who believe in you. I believe in you. And so I would tell myself that because that's what I needed to hear at that age. So while you were in the system, you faced a lot of obstacles. What was the hardest obstacle you faced and what did you do to overcome it? Oh, it was an obstacle just waking up every day in that place. <laughs> it really was. Just, you know, hope, just maintaining that hope. 
that was that was huge just knowing that like I would come out of this God always put into my spirit that I wasn't going to do life in prison but whenever I had met Jamie you know all of my pills had been denied and so in the earthly realm it was looking like it was over for me so it was really hard to maintain that hope and just not give up a lot of people in prison get to the point where they just give up they don't care about doing the right thing anymore they don't care about how their actions affect other people. They just kind of just give up. They just give into it. And, you know, that was a struggle to not do that and to just choose to live a meaningful life despite the circumstances and despite the odds. So in your book, you wrote about the concept of restorative justice. Can you elaborate, like, what that is and how it fits into our criminal justice system today? For me, the simplest way I can put it is seeing people as people no matter what they've done, no matter, you know, what the circumstances are, right? Seeing each other as people, as members of the community. When something happens, you know, it disrupts things, right? So whenever I was going through judicial process, we learned about the concept of shalom. And whenever shalom has been broke, whenever it's been disturbed, you know, back in the day over, I guess it was Jerusalem, I'm not sure, but wherever they practice shalom, you know, they would come together as a community to determine how do we restore this balance. And in our justice system now, it's less about restoring a balance than it is about just punishing, than it is about just following this rigid set of guidelines. This happens, so this needs to happen. The person on both sides, the defense and the victim, like they're just completely removed from the equation. And you always see these situations where a sentence has been handed down, but there's no healing on either side of it. So the person is just completely removed. So human trafficking has devastated thousands of families across the U.S. Do you have any tips on how to recognize human sex trafficking and like how to make sure those people get the help they need? Yeah, so number one, you have to start actually having relationship, right? Because this is where... like you'll pick up on things. I can remember so many people, so many adults who were around when I was out doing what I was out doing, and they just kind of just glanced over me, like I kind of wasn't there, right? I had older boyfriends. Nobody really batted an eye about that. When you start seeing young people coming up with money and don't know where it's coming from, but all of a sudden they start having it, they start dressing differently, they start acting differently, they start hanging around older people, this different crowd of people, secretive a lot. There's so many signs, but you're never gonna pick up on it unless you pay attention, unless you actually work on having a relationship with these young people. And I know it can be hard. Um, sometimes they don't always wanna let you in. Sometimes they don't wanna talk about what they're going through, but you have to be that person where there's that space where they know when they're ready, then they can come to you. Um, but you can always go to Epic Girl. I know Epic Girl, they always educate people on signs. Um, Polaris, as you said, you're raising money for Polaris. You can go to their website. They have resources there to let you know how to identify it and then also how to report it. If you ever suspect human trafficking, if you see something, you need to say something. Um, there is a national hotline in place for you to do just that. So another huge issue with human sex trafficking is that victims oftentimes aren't viewed as victims, and they don't realize themselves that they are victims. At what point in your story did you realize that you were the victim of sex trafficking? 
Right. So I mentioned earlier, I was almost 30 years old. And I had always been told that I was a teen prostitute. I would see human trafficking victims as people who'd been brought over from another country, right? You know, the white girl that gets kidnapped and thrown in the trunk and forced to do things. That's a trafficking victim. For me, I was just a young prostitute. And I was told that not only by the community, I was also told that by the DA, by the court system. And you see that a lot. You still see that today. You still see that there are certain individuals who think that some young girls just choose that life. Some young girls are just fast or promiscuous. And it was actually a campaign by a group here in Tennessee called End Slavery that forced me to really understand what happened to me was not my fault, it was not okay, and it was actually exploitation, that I could not consent to my own exploitation because there is no such thing as a teen prostitute. So what can we as a community in a high school and a congregation do to raise awareness for human sex trafficking? Well, I definitely hope that you'll support the Glitter Project. Um, whenever it comes out in January, what we're doing, we're working on everything now, um, getting a website up and all the social media platforms. But it's really about listening to these stories and these narratives and sharing them, right? Having these conversations, coming out like you did now, like wanting to get interested, wanting to get involved, wanting to educate yourself. And that's so important. What I found through my own research was that the social norms that are in place really kind of support trafficking, whether you know it or not. And that has to change. It has to change with what we find is acceptable. We encourage young people to do so many things to find acceptance with other people. They're on social media posting half naked and that's glorified. And that's what led me into the arms of the person that was trafficking me, was that wanting to be accepted and sacrificing myself just so he can like me just so I can feel like I was desired. And that's unhealthy. And we need to have, start having those conversations with young women, with young girls, with young men too, because a lot of people don't recognize that there are many young boys who are trafficked as well. And it's just about having that conversation. So you were granted clemency by former Governor Bill Haslam this year, but before that you had three appeals in the court system. How did you stay positive and dedicated throughout that process after every appeal? It was rough. Um, you know, every time you get an appeal, you always think, like, this is going to be it. Because you think, you know, your attorney, he's put together this great packet, this, this great case law he's found, and all the factors in this case are just like the factors in your case. But you quickly find out that in the law and in case law, for every argument that supports yours, there's another argument that undermines it, right? You can find case law to support any position that you take up in the courtroom. And every appeal, I found out that I ended up on the short end of that. And you always think you're going to win, and when you don't, it is devastating. But you have no choice but to keep hoping and to keep pushing. There are women now who have exhausted all their appeals, and they just hope that the law changes. Every time that a bill gets introduced in the legislature that that cuts down sentencing or that offers parole opportunities for more people, you always see them get so excited and so full of hope. And even when it goes away, they're still hopeful that it'll still happen. So you just kind of just depend on change. 
You depend on God to just bring that however he brings it. Um, but what you're doing here by coming here tonight and showing that you're interested, it means so much to those people in there because they're depending on people to step up and advocate for change just as you're doing now. So thank you very much, Ms. Brown. Uh, we're now going to open the floor up to any questions we have from the audience. So uh, please raise your hand if you have a question and speak clearly into the microphone. Mm -hmm. I just showed this to Centoya when, when she came in. Um, I met Centoya when she, I think you were 14 at Woodland Hills. Mm -hmm. um, I was involved with a uh, prison ministry called Kairos Torch. And Centoya was at my table, and I led music for the weekend. And your teacher, y'all's teacher, was talking so much about forgiveness. And one of the songs that I sang on that whole weekend was called You Are My Wholeness. In you I find forgiveness. In you I find release. It's a wonder you take all the blunders I make and so graciously offer me my peace. Offer me peace. And I want to give you this, but also I have Centoya's <laughs> autograph on here. <laughs> and um, I knew at age 14 that there was something special about you because when we sat and we had conversations together, there was a peace about you, even at Woodland Hills, and I have prayed for you so much and followed your story through this whole thing. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Uh, so as Mr. White said earlier, we had Ashley Sellers come into the room, uh, into my class, and she said that when she got out of jail, uh, society was so much different, like she had trouble working at GPS, and um, I was just wondering if like it was as hard for you as it was for her to like adapt to modern technology and all that stuff. I don't think so, right? I picked it up pretty easy. <laughs> I'm pretty good at that. Jamie always says I'm nosy. I like to say that I'm inquisitive. Um, so, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to figure stuff out. I may have pressed a button that did some bad things and messed some stuff up, but nothing I could undo. Um, so I figured things out pretty easily in terms of technology. Gotten pretty good at it. But it can be overwhelming, especially for someone, you know, a lot of people who are getting out of prison, like, they... They don't, they don't even understand the concept of a cell phone. I was incarcerated with women. They didn't even have cell phones. You, I don't even know if y'all remember. Maybe y'all remember the big block phones, <laughs> the big Motorola's. Like, <laughs> like, that's what they had when they went in, and that's a story with a lot of women who are getting out, and so it can be overwhelming. I know there are programs now you know, that try to teach people who are coming out of prison how to understand technology, but, um, yeah, it can be overwhelming, but I was good. Wow. I think I can speak for, safely speak for our congregation here, our church community, and say what an incredible blessing you are. Uh, um. and, and that guy sitting next to you as well. We're, I, one of the things I... I 
I got, here's an old white-headed guy on, on Google, but I actually Googled this this afternoon. How many people are incarcerated in the United States? Um, 2.3 million people are incarcerated. When you consider that the population of Tennessee is six and a half million, 60 and a half million. Um, it's pretty, that would be a big percent of people in, uh, in prison today. Uh, the thing that I wondered, Centoya, as much as anything, is after 15 years, and never losing hope, but after 15 years, what was it like that first morning when you woke up and you weren't behind bars? It was incredible. Um, every morning since then, it's just incredible. Jamie thinks I'm so corny because when I wake up, I'll just sit there and I'll just look at him and I'll just be smiling. And I'll say, I'm home. Like, I'm here. He's like, yeah, I'm still asleep. But, <laughs> but <laughs> it's just, like, everything amazes me. Like, even the smallest things, you know, the trees, the colors of the trees as they're changing. Like, I'm just amazed by it, and I'm just so blessed to just experience it. So it's just felt like... Incredible. It's the best word. <laughs> oh, um, Centoya, I just wanted to kind of know a little bit more about how you got involved with the Lipscomb cohort because that's how I re really resonate with you. Um, okay. <laughs> so that's a good question, right? Because as you spoke about before you were a volunteer that you had actually come into the facility and many of the programs that actually help people there in the prison system they're run by volunteers as a matter of fact all of the programs that I could ever think of that ever helped anyone were community-based programs community members who had actually come into the prison and volunteer their time and their resources and Lipscomb was another one Lipscomb University there was a group of individuals there led by Dr. Richard Good who had thought, you know, what if we could bring education into the prison? What if we can educate these individuals? Like, would that make a difference in terms of recidivism, in terms of their ability to adapt in free society? And they had to jump through a lot of hurdles, but they were able to start a college program there. And this program, each week, professors and students from the university actually come into the prison and have class with them. You get credit. You don't have to pay a thing because they go out into the community and raise money. And I walked away with two degrees. Um, so, uh, I think, of course, that uh, Mr. White and the Criminal Justice Club are doing a great job in, in outreach and education, like you, like you said. Um, how, how do you think we can use our education system as a tool to help incarcerated people, help victims of sex, sex trafficking, and just um, kind of improve the justice system as a whole? Good question. Um, number one, 
you know, bringing education into the facilities, bringing education to people who otherwise may not have access is so important. A lot of times you got to get very creative with that. Number two, actually educating people on how to advocate in a meaningful way, right? So when we talk about legislation, like, I, I can't vote, right? I can't vote as a felon. But I learned because the Lipscomb program taught me that I can easily go to a senator and a representative and I can go to them with an idea. I can go to them with a bill that I draft about this law needs to be changed because of this and they can sponsor it. I can find a sponsor from some other district. It doesn't matter. All they can do is tell me no, which I'm not good at taking, just like y'all. <laughs> and you can actually go through the legislative process to see actual change happen. And that's what we need to start educating people on, right? Because you think, oh, this needs to change. And maybe if I just tweet about it, maybe if I just talk about it, somebody will hear me. Now, there's actually avenues that you need to pursue to make that change a reality. Thank you again for your time. This question is for Mr. Mr. Jamie. Um, oftentimes, we, we buck the will of God, and we, we try to go a different direction. Uh, how were you able to connect or, or realize there was a connection between you and, and Ms. Centoya? Well, um, uh, good question. Um, so the, the way we met, I, when, when I'm asked this, I've, I've been asked this question, uh, so I like to go back to the, when we met. And, you know, like I was sitting in my room and she had been on my TV for three days and I clicked on the, doc, the documentary and I seen it was an hour long. My wife would tell you, I do not watch TV no longer than 10 minutes. I just, my attention span <laughs> on TV. So when I seen it was an hour long, I was like, yeah, no way. An hour later, I was like, wow, you know? And I walked out the room and before I could get to the other room I was going, the Lord said, stop and write her. I said, tell her what? <laughs> I took the advice to my mother. I do not talk to strangers. <laughs> I wrote her. And in the letter, I simply told her, prepare yourself. You're about to get out of prison. The Lord is telling me to tell you that you are about to get out of prison. I put it in, I put it in an envelope. He said, take it back out and burn the edges. I said, okay, this is getting kind of crazy. But it's in those detailed moments when you know the Lord is speaking to you, every detail matters. And it was the burnt edges that got her attention. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect to hear back from her. I was expecting to do my thing. I, I was, I'm, I'm living, I'm young, I'm successful. I, I just got my dream car, I, I'm, I'm, I don't, prison. <laughs> <laughs> After we were writing for four months, I went to visit her, and that young lady that I seen on my TV in the orange jumpsuit, when I walked in, the Lord said, okay, that's your wife. So I knew right then and there that my plans and the plans I had for my life went straight out the window. <laughs> and I told her, you're getting out of here. You need, I need you to start believing it because of, you know, faith comes with, you know, it comes without sin, but you have to believe. And now you're looking at her. She believed. Look at her. Amen.
two more questions. Anybody? Ms. Brown, um, you had professors to guide your academic um, career, and you've talked a great deal about your faith development. Did you have um, um, a spiritual director, someone who was able to help you and guide you in that faith development? This is my spiritual director right here um, that was able to guide me. You know, in the beginning, I was relying on religion because that's what I had been taught growing up. I was raised missionary Baptist, went to church every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night, and I knew all about religion, but that didn't get me anywhere. And I went through a period of more than 10 years where I just stopped believing because I saw that religion wasn't helping me at all. It didn't do anything for me. I was still sitting in a prison cell, and it didn't seem to be getting me out of there. And whenever Jamie taught me about faith and about having a relationship with Jesus, that's when things started to turn around. So I didn't have any kind of spiritual direction. I was just wandering through the wilderness by myself until he came along. Questions? Um, I just have a quick question. What made you want to call it the Glitter Project? That's a great question. Nobody's asked me that. <laughs> I thought it was so brilliant, right, when I thought about it. Because I was like, it needs an acronym. And what will I call it? And I thought about glitter because I love glitter. And the thing about glitter is it's shiny. It catches your eye, right? It reflects the light. And I knew that light needed to be reflected on these voices, on this experience, on this truth. So it just seemed a no-brainer. Then I just had to figure out what the letters would stand for. <laughs> and that worked out too. So. The, first off, as a parent of a 14-year-old going through the whole want-to-fit-in phase and trying to raise a daughter in faith, I appreciate and thank you for coming and sharing your story about how faith has gotten you there and your relationship with God. But you're so much more than your story. So I'm wondering, since you've been out, how has your reception as just a person in the community been and what, what would you change about that? Um... I don't know. I think a lot of times people still see me as that 16-year-old girl, right? And obviously I would still change that because I'm very much a woman now. I have lived, I have learned from my experiences, and now there's so much for other people to learn from them. Um, as far as how I've been treated, I've been treated great, like in person. Social media can be harsh, <laughs> you know? Um, that can be like really toxic. And I would tell young people that as well. Like, social media wasn't around when I was young, but I would speak to you and, and tell people, don't let your lives get caught up in social media. That, that's not life. Amen. It's, it's not. Um, I've had to learn how to remove myself from that, especially the comments um, from periods of time. But, you know, if I hadn't have learned 
like what I've learned through life and about not wanting to die to be accepted by other people, knowing that I'm okay just how I am. There's always going to be somebody who doesn't accept me. There's always going to be somebody who has something negative to say about me, and I'm okay with that because I don't live for other people. Then I would be really lost with the world as it is now. So as a mother to a 14-year-old, you know, that's important to have that conversation with young people. And every chance that I get to speak to a young person, I try to let them know that. One last. Uh, Jamie, I just was wondering where your religious background came from, where you first met the Lord. Um, I was raised, my whole family, I was raised that way. And, you know, the Bible clearly says you train up a child in the ways of the Lord, he shall not depart from it. So I'm standing here, and I, I mean, my mother taught me. So she put it in me early. I strayed away, and it was like a boomerang effect. He called me right back. He's a Texas man, too. That helps. <laughs> so. So, how many people, when you told them that you were writing this story, how many people said, are you crazy? Well, I told myself I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, honestly, if you would have told me at that time, you know, uh, next, next month we'll be uh, celebrating a year of being married and three years of being together, so... Um, if you would have told me, <laughs> if you would have told me then, um, at the time I was writing her that I was actually writing my wife, I probably would have stopped writing because it's like, I mean, like I say, when, when the Lord steps in, he intervenes, his plans are so much greater than ours. Mm -hmm. And I'm so thankful that I put that letter in the mail because I met not only my life partner, but I met my best friend. And it's been beautiful ever since. So. Well, again, thank you all. 